This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm John Dickerson in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, with scientists now warning that if you are unvaccinated, you will likely get the coronavirus, will that change the minds of the biggest holdouts when it comes to getting vaccinated? America is seeing a summer surge of COVID. Case rates have more than doubled since late June, fueled by the highly contagious Delta variant. The Delta variant is COVID on steroids. This virus is far more infectious than the COVID we were dealing with a year ago. According to the CDC, this surge was avoidable. Hotspots are mostly states or regions with low vaccine rates. In Springfield, Missouri, cases are up 150% since last month. We'll talk with the city's mayor, Ken McClure, and we'll check in with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. In their campaign to get more people vaccinated, the Biden administration targets COVID-19 social media misinformation. What's your message to platforms like Facebook? Look, the only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated, and, that, and, they're, and they're killing people. What can be done to fight misinformation? We'll ask the former head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krabs. Elections expert David Becker will weigh in on challenges across the country to voting laws. And CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger will tell us why prices are rising and if and when we should expect to see them return to normal. Plus context on some of the jaw-dropping revelations from new books about the Trump presidency with former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Michael Mullen. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Many weeks when we put together this broadcast, we're challenged by the number of stories that we want to cover and how best to illuminate them. This is one of those weeks. We're going to try to get to a lot today. Our lead is clear, though. It's a story that has dominated the news for 18 months now, with a dangerous new twist, causing a surge of the coronavirus here in the U.S. Mark Strassman reports from Van Horn, Texas. COVID has boomerang. The menace, the masking, the fear, all back. And it's largely a self-inflicted wound across our two Americas. This is becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated. As of midnight, Los Angeles reimposed its indoor mask mandate. Las Vegas wants safer odds, now recommending masks in casinos and all indoor spaces. For the first time since January, New weekly COVID cases have jumped in all 50 states, fueled by the Delta variant. Nationally, a spike of almost 70 percent. Hospitalizations up roughly 36 percent. Deaths, 26 percent. 
But in the same week, nationally, new vaccination doses plummeted another 35%. Immunologists say these dots are easy to connect. Take Texas in the bottom 20 states for its vaccination rate. Week to week, new cases here soared more than 100%. Or consider the sickest COVID patients, the ones in hospitals. Nationwide, 97% of them are unvaccinated. Let's get rid of the vaccine. Especially galling to scientists, the relentless campaign of distrust and disinformation against the vaccines. COVID patients are getting younger, more children in the ICU. Florida's rate of new COVID cases, four times the national average. Governor Ron DeSantis encourages vaccinations, but hawks merchandise online that's anti-Fauci and anti-masking, messaging that resonates with millions of Americans. I'm just done. I'm, not, I've, I'm vaccinated. I don't need to wear a mask. Infection surges in places like Tennessee in the bottom five for vaccinating adults. 80% of children here between 12 and 15 are also unvaccinated. But the state has stopped all vaccine outreach to adolescents. We've got to get folks back into their pediatrician, back into their doctor, uh, and really ensure that they have adequate access to vaccinations and adequate education. That's Mark Strassman in Van Horn, Texas. We go now to Ken McClure, the mayor of Springfield, Missouri, where cases have skyrocketed, driven by the spread of the Delta variant. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. In your community, the two largest hospitals are maxed out. One of them, the, the CEO of the hospital, tweeted that he was pleading with people so that nurses would have to stop zipping body bags. How did it come to this? I think there are several reasons. First, Springfield is a hub. Uh, we are an attraction for tourism, we're an attraction for transportation, for business, for higher education, and certainly health care. So people come to Springfield to shop, to do business, and so people will come here, and I think that has greatly increased our exposure, compounded with what has been already indicated on misinformation. What kinds of uh, misinformation are you seeing in your community? I think we are seeing a lot spread through social media as people are talking about fears which they have, uh, health-related fears, what it might do to them later on in their lives, uh, what might be contained in the vaccinations, and that information is just incorrect, and I think we as a society and certainly in our community are being hurt by it. There's been a conversation throughout this pandemic about information that comes from the top down and information that comes in the community, which is why we wanted to talk to you. What is the most effective work that's going on there on the ground to address those who are vaccine hesitant. We are a community of collaboration. Nothing really of substance gets done in Springfield without a lot of people talking about it. And so we're focusing on those trusted community leaders, those trusted community institutions. And we know that if it comes from the community and leaders that people trust, that that helps. The Springfield News Leader this morning had a great article focusing on several community leaders who had taken the vaccine, why they were encouraging it. So we are working with so many entities to try to spread the word. And these are trusted sources. And I think that's a key to what we have to do to overcome this. How about in the churches? Have the pastors, there's been, uh, pastors have been talking about it, haven't they? 
The pastors have been a great help through this. We had established in April a year ago what we call the Have Faith Initiative, which at its peak had 80 to 100 different churches across denominational lines. We've had several of our largest churches, including the pastors in the last week or 10 days, stepping up from the pulpit and urging that their congregations get vaccinated. Churches have been stepping up to host vaccination clinics. And the key is faith leaders are trusted. People respect those who, with whom they worship, their worship leaders, and so we are relying upon those trusted entities. And in, uh, we had just this past week, for example, the latest numbers showing that we had the largest uh, increase in our vaccination rate in several weeks. And so I'm optimistic that that message is starting to take, take hold right now. How about there's another uh, somewhat mildly controversial issue about going door to door to get the information to people who may not get this kind of uh, accurate information you were talking about. How has that worked in your community? Well, I think the whole discussion on going door to door has been overblown. I will tell you that public health has been using the door to going door to door philosophy for years. It has been a tried and true practice which they use. Our Springfield Green County Public Health Department is using it, has been using it for a long time, but the key is that these are trusted community people. We call them community advocates. So it gets down to the people that community members will trust, spreading information that is factual and trustworthy. And how has the community in, in the past, there have been instances where a community faced with a challenge like this unifies, but we've seen so much uh, disunity in America on some of these questions related to the coronavirus. How has the reaction been in this most recent wave as you've seen the Delta variant come through Springfield? The most recent wave, in my opinion, has been very positive because we're talking about community collaboration, and that ultimately is going to be uh, the key to our success. We know what the solution is. It's vaccination. People need to get it. It's readily available. We have so many sites that can uh, provide that service. The age groups are now all encompassing down to age 12. So it gets down to the community leaders, the community institutions that people trust saying you have to get vaccination. That's the only way that we are going to emerge from this. You mentioned the school Springfield is the home to the to the largest school district in the state, as I understand it. Um, mass mandates have come back for the summer. What do you think about mandatory vaccinations for the fall when they go back to school? Well, mandatory vaccinations are going to be a very, very touchy issues, particularly as you get into publicly funded institutions. Some private institutions are doing that. I know our school district is strongly encouraging that vaccinations occur. They'll be doing that, I think, as students come back in the fall and to urge their parents to do that. Uh, but I have every confidence that the Springfield Public School District will take the appropriate steps to make sure students uh, are as safe as can be. I know they want to focus on in-person learning, and I believe that they'll be able to do that. A number of other counties in Missouri uh, have low vaccination rates. What would you advise the mayors and leaders in those counties who haven't yet experienced what you're going through? What would your message to them be? My message is that the surge is coming. The Delta variant will be there. It's going to spread. It's already spreading throughout Missouri. Take advantage of this time to get your vaccination rates up as high as you can. Use your community collaboration, your trusted sources. Make sure that people have good information, solid information, and use that time wisely because it will be too late if you have not established those relationships by the time that it gets there. But the surge will spread, and so hopefully people can learn what we've been experiencing here in Springfield. 
Mayor Ken McClure, we thank you very much for being with us this morning. Good luck in your community. Thanks again. And we go now to former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is on the board of Pfizer and joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning, Dr. Gottlieb. Good morning. So the CDC director said this week that, the, uh, that there is an epidemic of the unvaccinated. What's your reaction to that? Well, look, when you look at the people who've been hospitalized, 97% of the hospitalizations are in people who are unvaccinated. And most of the deaths that are occurring right now are in people who are unvaccinated. The bottom line is that many people are no longer susceptible to COVID. Um, more than 50%, about 50% of the population has been fully vaccinated. Probably another third of the American population has been previously infected with this virus. So many people aren't susceptible to the virus, but if 25% of the population remains susceptible to the virus, in absolute terms, that's still a lot of people. And this virus is so contagious, this variant is so contagious that it's gonna infect the majority of them. Most people will either get vaccinated or have been previously infected, or they will get this Delta variant. And for most people who get this Delta variant, it's gonna be the most serious virus that they get in their lifetime in terms of the risk of putting them in the hospital. We just talked to the mayor there of Springfield, Missouri, who said, was say, sent a message to other communities, it's coming. Um, do we, it just reminds me of the original days of this pandemic where the numbers kind of uh, caught up to where reality was. Is, do we have a handle really on the Delta variant and how it's spreading and how much of it there is in the community? Well, we're seeing a decoupling between cases and hospitalizations and deaths, and I think that's likely to persist. England is seeing that as well, and they're, they're further ahead in terms of their Delta epidemic than us, and that's because more of the vulnerable population has been vaccinated. I think at this point we're probably undercounting how many infections there are in the United States right now because to the extent that a lot of the infections are occurring in younger and healthier people who might be getting mild illness, they're not probably not presenting to get tested. And to the extent that there are some breakthrough cases, either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic cases in those who've been vaccinated, they're not presenting to get tested because if you've been vaccinated, you don't think that you have the coronavirus, even if you develop a mild illness. And we're not doing a lot of routine screening right now. Unless you work for the New York Yankees, you're not getting tested on a regular basis. So I think that this Delta wave could be far more advanced than what we're detecting right now. And our ascertainment the number of cases we're actually picking up could be lower. At the peak of the epidemic in the wintertime, we were probably turning over one in three or one in four infections. In the summer wave of last summer, we were probably picking up more like one in 10 infections. We might be picking up something on the order of one in 10 or one in 20 infections right now because more of those infections are occurring in people who either won't present for testing or they're mild infections and they're self-limiting. So the people who tend to be getting tested right now are people who are getting very sick or people who are developing telltale symptoms of COVID, like loss of taste or smell. And that's only about 15 or 20% of people who will become infected. So if there's low ascertainment, if we don't really know as much that's in the community as is actually there, and you live in a low vaccinated community that doesn't yet have the headlines about hospitals filling, is it a fair expectation that you're gonna start seeing those headlines in some number of days? It depends on where you live. I think if you live in states like I'm in right now where vaccination rates are very high and there's been a lot of previous spread, there is a wall of immunity and I think it's gonna be a backstop against Delta spread. If you're in parts of the country where vaccination rates are low and there hasn't been a lot of prior spread, and that's a lot of parts of the rural South, I think it's much more vulnerable. I think people who live in those communities, especially if you live in communities where the prevalence is already high, I think it's prudent to take precautions if you're a vulnerable individual. And Delta is so contagious that when we talk about masks, I don't think we should just talk about masks. I think we should be talking about high quality masks. Quality of mask is gonna make a difference with a variant that spreads 
more aggressively like Delta does, where people are more contagious and exude more virus. And trying to get N95 masks into the hands of vulnerable individuals in places where this is really epidemic, I think is going to be important. Even in cases where they're vaccinated, if they want to add another layer of protection, there are a supplier of N95 masks right now. There's no shortage. There's plenty of masks available for healthcare workers. So it could be something that we start talking about, getting better quality masks into the hands of people. Because I think it's going to be hard to mandate these things right now, but we could certainly provide them so people can use them on a voluntary basis to try to protect themselves. Let me just underscore that briefly, because one of the things we have seen is in people who don't want to get vaccinated, they say, well, I'll wear a mask. But your point is, if you're going to wear a mask, any old piece of cloth isn't going to do. You have to have an N95 or something that's truly robust. Right. Remember, the original discussion around masks was that if we put masks on everyone, people who are asymptomatic and likely to transmit the infection would be less likely to transmit the infection if they had a cloth mask on or even a procedure mask on. And there is data to suggest that. There's data in flu and there's now data in COVID. But if you want to actually derive protection from the mask, meaning you want to protect yourself from others spreading the virus to you, quality of mask does matter. And a, and a high quality N95 mask is going to afford you a much better level of protection, especially if you fit it and wear it properly. So quality of mask is important. And I think if you're a vulnerable individual who wants to use that mask to protect yourself and not just use that mask to cut down on the risk that you could be a super spreader, you could be spraying the virus to others, then you have to look out for a high quality mask. They are available. Remember, originally during the epidemic, people were reluctant to um, recommend masks because there was a shortage for healthcare workers. There's now plenty of masks. The administration has done a good job getting masks out into the marketplace so you can get them from reputable suppliers like 3M right now. Let me ask you about misinformation from a medical perspective. What are the one or two things uh, that are out there that are the m biggest sources of misinformation in your view? Probably the most pervasive is that somehow the vaccine itself is going to have an impact on fertility. And I think that that's discouraging a lot of young women from getting vaccinated. I think quite the opposite is true. What we've seen is COVID infection during pregnancy can be very dangerous. I think every woman who's an expectant mom or a prospective mom should be talking to their doctor about getting vaccinated. The CDC has now started a registry called VSAFE. You can go on and look at it right now where they have 133,000 women who've registered for this registry who became pregnant after they got vaccinated while they, they got vaccinated while they were pregnant. And so they're prospectively collecting data on the safety of the vaccine in pregnancy. And it looks very encouraging. Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of, is also doing a study of the vaccine in pregnancy. So I think this is the single biggest piece of misinformation out there that discourages use of the vaccine. The other one is that this is somehow a DNA vaccine that's going to integrate into your genome. That's not the case. This is an mRNA vaccine. And what it really is doing is delivering a genetic sequence of mRNA of the of the spike protein. So basically the sequence that codes for production of the spike protein, which is that protein on the surface of the virus that we want to develop antibodies against. And when the body sees that mRNA, it does one of two things. Either it destroys it or it translates it into the protein and then your body develops antibodies against that protein. All vaccines work on the same basic principle in that they're trying to deliver a protein on the surface of the virus that you're trying to stimulate the immune system to develop antibodies against. In this case, instead of delivering that protein directly, mm. what you're delivering is a genetic sequence for that protein. All right, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, thank you so much. As always, see you next week. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stick with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. 
Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Last week, the Biden administration outlined several steps aimed at fighting back against both cyber attacks and misinformation campaigns. Chris Krebs is the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and now founding partner of Krebs Stamos Group, and he joins us now in person as a real live human here. Nice to see you, Chris. Good to be here. Thank you for being here. Let's start with misinformation. The, the, the Surgeon General put his finger on misinformation in terms of blocking people getting to vaccines. Um, you fought a lot of misinformation with respect to elections. Do you see similarities between those two? Absolutely. And it, it, was a, it was a remarkable week in terms of pronouncements, both from some of the social media platforms, Facebook, as well as the administration. Uh, what, what we are seeing here, though, is an ecosystem of information purveyors. Uh, some of this is politically motivated. Some of it is the anti-vax community. Some of it is, uh, you know, profiteering. And I, I tend to believe that there's a lot of that going on here. People selling quack cures. Yeah, and, and there was a, there was a uh, Washington Post piece the other day about uh, the FTC, a former uh, FTC commissioner, uh, Terrell McSweeney, um, that asked the FTC to investigate some of this, uh, some of the profiteering off of uh, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an incredibly important development in how we're going to move beyond not just uh, the pandemic-related disinformation, but also some of the uh, election-related disinformation. And is this different, dis, is there any foreign meddling in this kind of disinformation? We know about people passing, you know, neighbors who are passing mm -hmm. information that isn't square, but is, are there any foreign uh, entities involved? I think, yes, there are. And there, there tends to be a, a set of actors. There's state actors, intelligence uh, agents, uh, agencies, uh, again, the profiteers, you have conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, you have political uh, activists as well. And what happens, whether it's elections, whether it's COVID, whether it's technology issues, you tend to have an overlap of these different actors. And when you talk about foreign actors and Russian uh, disinformation specialists in particular, um, they, they don't actually have to do a whole lot because we've done so much here domestically to ourselves. But they get the seeds of division that they then amplify. They drive more activity. And ultimately, what they're looking to do is undermine our confidence in the United States of America, right. ourselves. We're all ready to fight, and they just drop in the thing that creates a new round of fighting. Yeah. Let me ask you about Facebook. They responded to the administration and said, 85% of our users are interested in vaccines, basically saying the administration is wrong. But the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which the administration pointed to, said that there are basically about 12 Facebook accounts that are spreading this disinformation. Help us think through what the right way to think about this is. Uh, unfortunately, both can be true at the same time. So yes, Facebook and other social media platforms can provide helpful information on uh, the facts behind the vaccine. And same thing happened in the elections last year. They had a, a banner and a trust page. But at, but at the same time, there are those that can use those platforms for their own benefits to continue to push 
disinformation. Now, what has happened over the last several months is that some of those, the, the, the dirty dozen or whatever they're calling it, some of those have been uh, deplatformed. But the problem is, particularly for vaccine disinformation, it is metastasized. And it is now, you mentioned it earlier about the top down and the bottom up, the grassroots piece. It is now so pervasive that it exists just naturally within the ecosystem on Facebook and elsewhere. And that's where we need the platform to be more transparent in how their algorithms work, how engagement works, so that outside security experts and researchers can dig in and hold them accountable, that us as consumers of these platforms can hold them accountable and demand better. So we have 15 seconds left. Do you mean the structure of, of Facebook is, is raising up just regular people who are spreading information? Unfortunately, uh, fear sells, and those clicks drive more engagement. All right, Chris, stay right there. Chris will be right back. We need to take a short break, but stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to Face the Nation. More with former head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs. Chris, um, our evil. This is the Russian-based operation that was responsible for the Colonial Pipeline. What happened to them? It's not clear. There are three possibilities. One is that, that the president meeting with Putin had an effect and the law enforcement or intelligence services in Russia told him to knock it off. That's certainly an option. The second is that some sort of U U.S. or allied operation uh, put enough kind of sand in their gears where they decided to pack it up. The third is a theory that uh, Dmitry Alperovitch, formerly of CrowdStrike, now with Silverado, uh, policy accelerator is has advanced that it's hot in Moscow right now and these guys just made a lot of money so maybe they're hanging it up for a couple months going down to the Black Sea you know they just picked up some territory there in, in east uh, eastern Ukraine so maybe hanging out down there so on the first two theories um, the first would be that the Russians are basically proving Biden's case which is you have control over these people and you can make them stop um, which would have implications, wouldn't it, for the for the just the general? Uh, because the Russians are involved in a lot of bad activities. Absolutely, and you know that would tell them tell me that they, as you said, they have some authorities uh, and some ability to compel action. But that doesn't mean that these folks are just going to go away. They can go to other safe havens. Belarus could be an option where they just move up, pack up operations, and go elsewhere that that may provide them a little bit more of a uh, you know a comforting uh, environment. Now, let's imagine they go for whichever of the three reasons it is. Um, how easily can they be replaced by an equally creative, malevolent force? I would, uh, I, what I would expect to see this team, the Revil team, who was previously known as Gan Crab, uh, I would expect that they would come back and rebrand in the fall, probably, uh, some new name, some rebrand. And, and that gives them the advantage of staying off the radar of law enforcement and if the administration start sanctioning some of these ransomware crews, which they've done in the past, uh, that, you know, by changing names, it, it, it makes law enforcement and the Treasury Department play catch up. 
Speaking of playing catch up, so there is now somebody in your old job. Yes. Um, the administration has a lot of players on the field. Um, give me your assessment of the Biden administration's cybersecurity team. And I'll throw in there something Garrett Graff in Wired wrote about, which is maybe they got so many people on the field, it's going to be hard for everybody to stay coordinated. So they, they have an impressive team. It really, so uh, Jen Easterly just came in, was confirmed earlier this week. They also have uh, Chris Inglis, who's the new uh, first national cyber director. You have Ann Neuberger in the White House. You have Rob Joyce at the National Security Agency. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost an embarrassment of riches from a capability perspective. Uh, and kind of going from the last administration, which was uh, you know, a much smaller set of cyber experts, there's going to be some adjustments. But CISA, my old agency, now Jen Easterly's agency, is the front door for private sector engagement with the U.S. government. And I really look forward to her and that team continuing to move the ball forward on improving cyber defenses here domestically. All right, Chris Krebs, we're out of time. We're probably going to be talking to you a lot more about this issue, so we really appreciate it. Thank sure. you. And we turn now to the state of the economy and the recent uptick in consumer prices. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger joins us from Long Island. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. So prices are up 5%. That's the biggest rise in 13 years since August of 2008. What's going on? Well, there's a lot of different forces, and I just want to point out that a lot of this has to do with the fact that a year ago, when we have these price increases, we look back a year, that's when the economy was still mostly shut down. So the effect of looking one year ago is that it seems like this gigantic big jump in prices. But we also have the confluence of good old Econ 101, supply and demand. So obviously we've been shut down mostly for 16 months, red hot consumer demand. There's more than $2 trillion of excess savings that we have burning a hole in our pockets and we're spending it big time. And then on the supply side, we've had a lot of bottlenecks in supply in certain areas and that has really cut off a lot of supply. So you put it all together and as you said, a big price increase, even when we take out volatile food and energy, we have the biggest price increases in 30 years. So help us understand what is uh, the result of a once in a lifetime pandemic and the strange coming out of that with an economy. What's going up, what, what's increasing, and what portion of what's increasing do you think is a result of say those bottlenecks you talked about, which have to do with the pandemic, and, uh, and what portion of what's increasing is likely to maybe stay uh, higher as the economy recovers? Well, I think it's important to note that economists are battling this very question right now, and we don't know the answer. Here's what we do know. The things that went down the most in price during the pandemic are seeing huge increases. So everything in leisure and hospitality has gone sky high. You know, go look for a hotel right now. Go try to fly. It's tough. Okay, but then what other areas, as we talk about those supply chains, semiconductor chips are really in need right now. And those are needed in cars. Because new car production stalled in the beginning of the pandemic, very few suppliers thought that there was gonna be this huge demand for cars. Well, no new cars, let me go to the used car market. Wait a second, there are used cars that are up 40% in price from before the pandemic. This is a huge number. Those kinds of bottlenecks will not continue. But I think the area that economists are most worried about is 
everything else. And that means that we've got to watch wages, we've got to watch food prices, clothing and apparel was up very big. And it is unclear to anyone at this moment in time how much of that will stick and for how long. Jill, what about, I mean, wages are a part of this as well. Um, we hear about labor shortages and, uh, and you see companies in the fast food industry adding more not only to the paycheck but also benefits. How much are wages a part of this picture and what do you think the durability of that is? Will that change or will they go back down again? I think this is a really interesting question because for so many years, it really felt like employers had the upper hand. And through the pandemic, because there was a lot of ability for people to stay home, we wanted them to stay home. People were really happy to collect the money and be safe, and that was smart. Now we have smaller companies specifically complaining they cannot find labor. Now a company like McDonald's or a Starbucks or an Amazon, they can pay up. They've made gobs of money throughout the pandemic, no problem. I think the concern is around some of the smaller employers, the mom and pop stores. They're saying, we can't find people, we can't afford to pay these wages to compete with the big guys, and we're getting squeezed out. Now, if you're a worker, you're feeling pretty good. But remember one thing, we have to really look at these prices because if prices are up by 5% and you only have a 3% increase, you're losing. In fact, the Labor Department said that if you look at the average wages right now from a year ago and you account for inflation, we actually are making 1.7% less than we did a year ago. And that's not a great condition for workers. With 30 seconds left, Jill, we can't talk about inflation without talking about the Federal Reserve. What's your sense of what the Federal Reserve will do in response to these signals of inflation? Well, remember, the Fed has basically two jobs. They want to foster enough economic growth to get people in the labor force, and they want to keep an eye on prices. For 10 years prior to the pandemic, they were worried that prices were not rising enough. Now they've got to focus on inflation. The Fed chair, Jerome Powell, has said that the Fed is willing to let inflation run hotter for a little bit longer to get the millions of people who are not yet back in the labor force back in. So I think that we are going to see higher prices at least for another six months. Next year, that's another question, John. Jill, thanks so much for breaking it all down for us. A number of books have been published recently about Donald Trump's presidency. One episode contained in many of them, as well as a New Yorker article this week by Susan Glasser, stands out. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, spent the final months of the Trump administration worried that the president would use the military to stage a coup to deny Joe Biden the presidency or launch hostilities against Iran as a way to stay in power. What makes this story notable is the stature of its main character, Milley is not some low-level campaign aide. He is the nation's top military official, whose job required close work with Mr. Trump. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs must scan the horizon for dangers and devise plans to meet them. He advises a president about what he can do about threats. But in this case, it was what the president might do that Milley thought was the threat. For insight into this episode and the questions it raises, we turn to a man who held Milley's job before him, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, who joins us from Hillard, Ohio. Good morning, Admiral. Good morning, John. It's good to be with you. It's good to have you here. You were chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. What do you make of this episode? 
Well, I think the reporting, uh, from what I understand, has been pretty accurate. Uh, pretty chaotic time, particularly after the election. Uh, and uh, the two threats that you talked about, uh, the external one and whether or not we would uh, commence some kind of combat or conflict with Iran, and then the internal one in terms of uh, where it might go, particularly with respect to how the military would be used by President Trump to somehow validate that the election actually was a fraud and keep the president in power. I think that's all very accurate and obviously incredibly disturbing, uh, literally in every respect. And it's fair to say uh, you don't train for those kinds of uh, eventualities with a commander in chief. No, you don't. Uh, although I think General Milley and the others who've served over the last four years would tell you it's, a, it's been a very chaotic environment, very difficult to predict what was going to happen from day to day, uh, and uh, great concern uh, with respect to the possibility of you know, some of the orders that might come the military's way, which generally will go uh, with the advice uh, of uh, the chairman and certainly directly to a combatant commander. Uh, in the case of Iran, it would go to central command. And so the chairman's got, in this case, General Milley, I thought, really did the right thing uh, on both fronts, quite frankly. Uh, I don't think he was alone with respect to Iran. Yeah. But I think on the, on the internal uh, potential for a coup, you know, Milley really stood up, did the right thing, and I think made the case that he was the right officer to have in the right job at the right time in a, in a very, very difficult, stunning, uh, and unprecedented situation. Help us distinguish between garden variety conflict between a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and a president and what we're talking about here. Because I know uh, President Obama wrote in, in his book about once being, you know, in a tough conversation with you. Those are you, those are, those happen in that job. But that's something quite different from what Milley was worried about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Every chairman uh, for the four years that he's there that has huge challenges. Uh, and, and so you get into some very, very tough, heated debates about what, uh, you know, what's recommended or what's going to be done in a given situation. But in the end, you know, the, the chairman and the military leadership uh, once the president makes a decision, you know, we carry it out. There's no discussion with respect to that. Uh, in this case, you know, clearly uh, had uh, President Trump decided to use the military against the American people and somehow create uh, an opportunity for the president to stay in, in place, uh, that rubs up, or actually it, it, it's contrary to the Constitution uh, which is what the military serves as opposed to the president and could be seen as an illegal, immoral, or unethical order, in which case, you know, General Milley uh, and the rest of the military leadership, the other four stars, uh, in my view, would be, uh, would be required to uh, either resist or, if they're unable to resist, resign. One of the turning point moments for General Milley was the president's uh, walk through Lafayette Park, in which General Milley walked with him, clearing protesters uh, for a photo op. You wrote, you spoke out after not speaking out about the Trump administration in an article in The Atlantic uh, and said that you were worried about the military being used in political ways. That was a turning point 
for you and for General Milley. I guess my point is, uh, this, these episodes in this book were a part of a growing trend. It wasn't just what happened at the end of the Trump administration. You, you had fears about the politicization of the military long before that. I do, and, and I did, and I continue to have them uh, even now because the political environment is is so intense uh, and so divided, uh, and we need to work hard to make sure the military doesn't become part of what is politicized in this country. I think, as far as Lafayette Park is concerned, you know, General Milley spoke publicly very quickly thereafter, uh, and uh, readily admitted he made a big mistake. Uh, with respect to uh, literally from June until, uh, until after January 6th when Milley really started to be concerned about what was possible. His antenna was up. Uh, he knew the right thing to do. He knew, he knew how to do it uh, as best you could figure out in what is a very, very fluid situation. And then he executed accordingly. So I think he more than made up for that mistake that he made surrounding Lafayette Square. All right, Admiral Mike Mullen, thank you so much for being with us and helping us put all of this in context. We really appreciate it. And we'll be back in a moment. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, Trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Since the November election, 17 states have enacted new laws that tighten rules around casting ballots and running elections. In an effort to keep Texas from becoming the 18th, Democrats in the state legislature staged a dramatic protest flying to Washington to block Republicans from passing a more restrictive voting law. To help us put those challenges into perspective, we're joined by David Becker, the director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. Welcome. Nice to have you here, David. Thanks. Great to be here, John. There's a lot going on. So just put us, give us the basic perspective of what's going on with all of these different voting rights uh, efforts. So we're seeing a lot of highly partisan efforts to make it harder for some people to vote. They do appear to be targeted in some ways to ensure that, in particular, the Republican Party right now might uh, be perceived to have a better chance of winning some elections. But what I'm also very concerned about are unprecedented efforts to inject toxic partisanship into the counting of ballots and the certification of election results that occur during election and after an election, where you're going to see potentially chaos from things like what we're seeing in Texas, where they're introducing efforts to allow for partisan poll watchers to roam free within the polling place, interfering with the process, where we're seeing efforts to criminalize um, activities by professional election administrators who are trying to make it easier and more efficient and more secure for elections to be run. We've never really seen that before, and it could be potentially a national security issue. So I'll get to the national security issue in a second, but essentially, do we have two baskets of concern here? One is limits and challenges to just getting to the polling place and the right to vote. And then the second is what you do after those votes are cast and who gets to oversee them and who gets to question them and that kind of thing. Is those the two basic categories? I think that's basically right. And, and, it's, and it's important to note that these are all being based on a complete lie that the election somehow some had some irregularities. We're now well over eight months past the election. The losing candidate 
hasn't brought forth any evidence that's been considered by any court or anywhere else that's been valid that the election was not secure. And in fact, this election was, as the Attorney General, as Attorney General Barr said, as the DHS said under Trump, as uh, the FBI said, and as many others said, this was the most secure and transparent and verified election we've ever held in American history. Yeah, actually, just reset the table here. How many actual people, humans, have been uh, charged or anything with fraud in 2020 in the whole country? I, I mean, very few. It's a handful. I believe it's under 10 at this point in time. The total number of potential fraud cases that we might see in an election of this size, 160 million people voted in November, which is amazing. But the total number of fraud cases we might see is going to be measured in the dozens out of 160 million, not anywhere near anything that could have affected the outcome. So back to your the two categories you were talking about, the problems with voting and then the problems after the vote is cast. Um, Republican leader, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said these are common sense measures out in the country. They're just trying to unwind the measures that were brought in under the age of covid and, and sort of restore things to the way it was before. Is uh, is that an accurate characterization of the scope of things that are being suggested? I don't think it's entirely accurate. I think what we're seeing in light, it's always a good idea after an election to look at what actually worked based on facts and maybe consider ways to improve that. And there are ways to increase integrity while also increasing access. Um, what we're seeing here are things like in Georgia, for instance, where they ran not only the most successful highest turnout election they've ever held, they actually ran two of them within a two month period of time. But they did this with paper ballots for the first time in two decades, and they were able to count every one of those presidential ballots three times, three different ways, once entirely by hand. We should be applauding those efforts. I think another thing that's really important here is when we talk about election integrity, it is actually good for election integrity when we have more people voting in different ways over a period of time. We don't want to have a single point of failure on election day, where if something goes wrong, we can't fix it. If we learn of a problem at 1 p.m. on election day, it's very hard to fix by the time the polls close. But if we have people voting by mail, people voting early in person, and people voting on election day, as we saw in most states in 2020, we can actually find problems early and fix them so they don't affect the outcome of the election. That's a very good integrity measure. So is so if if those ways of voting are limited, then does that mean there's the opportunity for more chaos? Is this what you were talking about with, in terms of national security? There's more opportunity for chaos and our America's enemies love opportunities for chaos. That's right. Imagine now we're in a highly partisan environment. We're concentrating more voting on election day in polling places where there might be long lines, where partisan poll watchers have free reign to engage in chaos. And then we are now injecting partisanship into the counting and certification process where partisans might be tempted to overturn the will of the people and they are somewhat empowered to do that by their legislators. This is something, this could be a void that our adversaries see and try to exploit in some ways. So in about the last 30 seconds we have, tell me about what your sense is the prospects of abilities to push back against some of these measures that you find alarming, that Democrats certainly find alarming, either in Congress or at the local level. Yeah, we don't have many ways to fight back at this point. We've, we've gone seven months into the year. Um, clearly, one thing we need to do is everyone needs to stand up and say, this election was valid, it was secure, and applaud the election officials who ran it. But secondly, maybe Congress does have a small window here where Republicans and Democrats of goodwill can come together on, a, on some kind of bill that actually could establish a foundation for democracy that could get 50 votes. So far, we haven't seen an election bill that could get 50 votes, and so the filibuster is not necessarily relevant at, as of yet. All right, I'm gonna have to cut, cut you off. We're out of time, David, thanks so much. I'm John Dickerson, and this has been Face the Nation. 
Today's guests were Springfield, Missouri Mayor Ken McClure, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Chris Krebs, CBS News Business Analyst Jill Schlesinger, former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Admiral Michael Mullen, and Executive Director and Founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research David Becker. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern, every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.